This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. So Taylor, a few weeks ago when we recorded, your cat was kind of all over you. It was on the keyboard. It, it was I, could, I pictured it in my mind, wrapping itself around your monitor and through cords and through your arms and through your legs and up over your shoulders but we haven't heard anything from the cat recently so what's <laughs> what's up you might not have heard anything from him but i've been hearing a lot from him um <laughs> he he's this close to becoming a taco no i'm kidding <laughs> For the listeners kidding. who missed last week's show there's a reference there <laughs> yes um I, I love him. I love him to pieces. He's such a little troublemaker. He's so into everything. I've I've not had a lot of cats in my life. And so this is the first time I've really had a chance to experience what it's like to have a cat who wholeheartedly and completely sees you as his person, but also is a very interactive, attention-demanding cat. And it's been fascinating to me um he gets into everything he chews up everything that part's not fascinating he likes the feel of things on his teeth so if i have any kind of cardboard around he will shred it with his teeth just take chunks out of it bite it bite it bite it he's not eating it he just wants that feel on his teeth and i learned that when i play with him with his favorite cat toy what he wants most and he's tried to communicate this to me, but I don't speak meow very well, is he wants to bite and have me try and pull the, the flower or the, that's what it is. It's a flower on this swish toy. Uh, he wants to bite onto it and have me pull it away from him in sort of a tug of war. And he, because he likes that feel. So he'll finally communicate this is what I want I get the point now and I'll I'll play that with him and he just wants to do it over and over he doesn't let go but he's not angry he just wants to have to fight you for it that was so fascinating to me not that he wants to do that but that he was trying to find ways to communicate what it was that he wanted but the thing that totally blew my mind was I've I've never played with laser pointers with him much. I, I just haven't had any around. And someone gave me a pen, like a, a write with pen that had a laser pointer on the end. And he loves that thing. He loves it so much, but he knows it's me that's controlling it. And so the other night I was playing with it with him and I put it up the wall, you know, cause he likes to jump. And then I turned it off and he whips his head around and he stares at me and yells like, what the F person, human, I was playing with that, put it back on. <laughs> and so I was like, was that a fluke? And so I, you know, put it on. He likes to stalk it around the room and I shut it off and he looks up at me like, seriously, haven't we already discussed this? 
So he knows, he knows I'm the one controlling it. But what's more than that is he knows the pen. It's just a pen. It looks like any other silver clickety ball tip, ballpoint pen. But he knows that one. And as soon as he sees me reach for it and pick it up, wherever he is, he could be up on the cat tree. He could be across the room. He comes running because he knows that pen in my hand makes the red dot. Anyway, that's my cat story. I love that cat. I love that cat more than I've loved any other animal in my life, which is why he can still tear up my stuff. And he's not tacos, but he's so annoying. This He destroyed, he has destroyed so much stuff. Any type of um, like uh, fake flowers or, or anything like that, he has shredded them. And ah, anyway, he's very smart. At least I think so. And, and for me, I think that uh, pets are a lot like babies where most people think they're cute and they'll endure a few little pictures or a few little stories, but no one is ever going to think your baby is as cute or as smart or as awesome as you do. So just stop talking about them already. So that's where I'm at with this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So stop talking about the cat already, Taylor. We know it's yes. cute. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So we're, uh, I think this is kind of like a lessons from the screen and you're, you're taking it a step beyond today. Yeah. So I wanted, um, I, I we get a lot of our storytelling, uh, you know, it, storytelling stories, I guess you could say from things that we've watched, not just read. And so there's a show that I saw that, I thought was fantastic, and I want to talk about that. But today we're going to also branch out into storytelling in video games. So I have two... and who better to talk about storytelling in video games than two people who don't play video games? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so exactly. Hang on to your hats. Yeah, it's going to be so exciting. So anyway, the first. Uh, show, story, whatever that I want to talk about is Pennyworth, which is, I think it's on HBO Max. And it, it is. is the story of Alfred, the person who's part of the whole Batman, Bruce Wayne's, I guess he's his butler, right? And it's his origin story. And it is amazing. It's absolutely amazing and i'm not saying that from a lover of comics um perspective i enjoy the comic based movies but i'm not like geek, geeked out over them i enjoy them i'll watch them they're entertaining some of my least favorite ones have been in the batman um genre or universe or whatever only because they're not all I don't know some of them are really dark and they're they they just haven't really pulled me in that much so I really didn't know what to expect going into Pennyworth but I saw the preview for it and I thought you know that that looks like it could be good and I have 
just been thrilled with it. And the, the, the writing is amazing. The dialogue is fantastic. The acting is superb. The characterizations are brilliant. And it's so much more. And I, from a, I guess you could say sort of Easter egg perspective, it's been quite entertaining watching this sort of recreation or I don't know, maybe maybe the, this information all exists somewhere in comics and I, I wouldn't know one way or the other. But to see um, these characters that you know later in the story, like Martha and, is it, I forgot the, <laughs> the, the dad, whatever his name is. <laughs> um, to see them Mr. Wayne. as, yes, to see them as young people to see their lives prior to see how they met and interacted and what brought them all together and so far I'm into season two now and there's nothing about that relationship between any of them that would make you think that that the Waynes would get together as a couple or make you think that Alfred would end up as their butler he is his own person and the story really focuses on him and and all of that but the the thing that i that made me go okay this is something that i really want to talk about is there are aspects in the first season that puzzled me why where did that come from why is this being part of the story and in some ways there are things that I personally would have not chosen to include. So there's going to be a little bit of spoiler here. Forgive me for that. But the, the story sort of takes place in a reimagined England. And it, it sort of riffs off of the rise of the Third Reich in, in Germany. It has that sort of fascist backdrop to what's happening. And it never happened in real life, obviously. So it's it's very it's a very fictionalized, reinvented history that's happening. That in itself is its own thing. It's it's pretty well done. But then also, there are some, I guess you could say, occultic elements that are brought in, and that's what puzzled me. The first one was there is. A murder, a, a death, and Alfred does not know who was behind it, but he very much does want to know who was behind it. And another character that has had a role through the story basically tells him, you do this thing for me, and I will give you the name of somebody who can tell you who killed that person. So, okay, plot device, Alfred does the thing, which is going to set up, set off a whole other chain of events. But the person that he's sent to is a psychic slash witch slash crazy person who's sort of like a, you know how Hannibal Lecter has his own sort of room down in the bottom of somewhere in big, huge asylum or whatever, that's how this per this person she has her own room, you know, has her own living quarters, but she's imprisoned there, and she is able to sort of get a read off of 
off of him and gives him some clues that points him in the right direction. And he figures out who the killer is. And I'm like, that it almost like, why, why was that there? But then we go one step further and there's this whole other element where Aleister Crowley, Crowley is brought in, into the story. And there's this very sort of strange, uh, just the strange scenes and interactions that happen. Um, Martha ends up getting involved and she wakes up three days later naked in a field and doesn't really know what's happened to her. And it's a little bit dark and kind of weird. And again, I'm like, I don't get it. Like the story has been pulling in characters that we know of from history and giving them an alternate set of history facts or whatever. But why this mystical, occultic angle? Like, where's that coming from? Like, why is that even necessary? It almost throws the whole feel of the show into something else. The only reason it doesn't is because it's like secondary. It's small. It's, it, it, it's not repeating. It doesn't keep coming up. And so being a storyteller... I'm sitting there trying to figure it out. Uh, like, why did the the creators of this show make these choices? And that took me on this whole idea of what could have happened. And it's hilarious because I have no way of knowing if it's true, but I'm just looking at it as a storyteller. What would be the reasons that these elements got included in? And so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you my imagination. But the reason why I'm doing this is because it's kind of like peeling back the curtain into a storyteller's mind, mine, not theirs, as I try and break down why I would have included those particular elements. I could be further, couldn't be further from the truth. I have no idea, but it's an interesting mental exercise. So that's where this is coming from. So why, why all of this? And for me, as a storyteller, it boiled down to Alfred has no way to know who killed this person. There's, there's no existing mechanism in the story because it kind of comes out of left field. It's unexpected. The shadows of it are there, but you don't recognize them because it's focusing on something else. And there are com completely unrelated, the whole storyline up to that point is completely unrelated to the person responsible for that death. You just, you see the death coming. You, you, you know it's coming, but you thought it was coming from a different angle. And so there's just no mechanism in that story for Alfred to figure out who the killer was. And he's not really a detective. He's a an SAS, his former SAS, so special forces. So he has no problem doing killing. Not so great at figuring things out, but he does some of that too. Anyway, we need a mechanism for how he's going to figure this out that points him on the right path. Fine. Let's send him to a psychic. She'll give him enough clues. He'll piece it together. That's all fine and dandy. But like we were talking about last week, 
balance, right? You can't have a show that is all one thing and then bleep it in the middle and insert this unexpected element of adding a psychic without that feeling completely unbalanced and out of place. So how do you balance something that's out of place without making, oh, Alfred got his information from this witch psychic prisoner feel weird? Well, you throw in, you you bring it in again. You bring in something mystical and magical again, but you make it bigger and more strange and crazy than the first one. So now that first one doesn't feel out of place anymore because that was just a prelude to this other really crazy stuff that's going on. Now, what that does is create an open loop. You've, you've introduced the element here. Now you've introduced it separately, bigger with Aleister Crowley and his whole timeline. You can't just drop that. It's, it's been there, but now it needs to be explored. Well, in the first season, it's not explored. So what that tells me as a storyteller is Aleister Crowley is going to show up again for some other thing plot related so that we can close that loop and make everything that came in the first part of the story feel balanced and make sense and not like do sex machina where you're just throwing it in there to make it easy, even if that really is all it was to begin with. And again, totally my imagination of how it would come to be. But yes, Aleister Crowley does show up in the second season. And I'm like, okay, I have no idea where that part of the storyline is going yet. I don't know if he's going to be used as a one and done, serve his purpose and then exit, or if that's going to be a lead up to something else. My point in this is this is how stories come together when you're trying to find that balance. And you can't just do it once. You've got to do it at least twice, maybe thrice. And then you have to close the loop so that it doesn't, you don't end up with this sense of what was that even doing in the story anyway. So I expect that we'll see more of it. But in this second season, it's much, much less so far than it was in the first, which to me says, okay, we're loop closing, but it might be used again later just so that it it feels complete and the and the cycle goes all the way through. So I I can see how I have done the same types of things in my in my own story building is I need a solution for this but this solution is going to feel out of place so in order to bring continuity and balance to the story I need to make sure that solution carries through and shows up or something connected to it shows up at least once possibly once more, possibly two more times to close out that those loops. And that's how story problem stories are built almost like Jenga puzzles. And you pull one piece out and you risk the whole thing toppling. And so anyway, that is my insight into my very fake insight into what might have driven these particular story choices. But I really wish that I knew what the real ones were. So that's Pennyworth. It's very good. Uh, I, I love the characterizations. I love the way they've casted these various characters. And I think, I don't know if I've just recently watched a lot of 
bad TV with horrible dialogue or I don't know what. But to me, this was this was craft. It was very, very well done. I'm enjoying it. I know there's at least one more season after this, and I, I plan to watch it all, all the way through. So that's Pennyworth. The next story time, Taylor, here that we've got going on, has to do with a video game. I am not a gamer. I've never played a video game myself. Well, I, I did like way back in the like 90s. There's the Mist, right? I played the original Mist. But other than that, I've really not. And, uh, you know, I'll play little puzzle games now, now and then, but I've just never been, so I've never really understood the appeal of games. Not because I didn't think there was an appeal. Obviously there is. I just never had a chance to experience it myself. So quite surprisingly, uh, not too long back, I was in a place where someone was playing The Last of Us, which is a very popular video game. And I've heard people talking about it and everybody goes, oh, it's such an amazing game. And now they're they're making a movie about it. Um, For those of you who are like me are not video gamers, I'm going to just read to you a really brief uh, summary of what The Last of Us is from the website of the creators. It says, experience the emotional storytelling and unforgettable characters in The Last of Us, winner of over 200 Game of the Year awards, in a ravaged civilization where infected and hardened survivors run rampant, Joel, a weary protagonist, is hired to smuggle 14-year-old Ellie out of a military quarantine zone. However, what starts as a small job soon transforms into a brutal cross-country journey. And th- that's that's the story, basically. So having never seen games like this being played before, I did not realize how much storytelling is actually involved in creating a story like this. I don't know, like if this has won over 200 game of the year awards, I'm going to assume it sort of stands above and beyond the average video game. And I'm going to also assume that not all video games tell story the way that this one does. But those first few minutes of me watching it, I watching somebody else play it, I was like, holy crap. This is this is story. This is this is amazing storytelling. And that was before I had read the little blurb about it or anything like that. This all I knew was I'm watching this person play this game and I'm like this game is amazing. And it's not amazing for the gamification part of it. It's amazing for the way the game is intertwined with story. And how it works from the little bit that I have seen is the story the the game is played between or I should say there are cut scenes that are brought up in between the gameplay so the characters will get into a, a situation that involves lots of fighting zombies and killing bad guys and finding supplies and all the things that go on in one of these sort of choose your own adventure story type things And once you have completed that particular scene or challenge, there's a cutaway. And you see the characters move on to something else, interact with each other, have discussions. It's it's acting. It, It is acting in animation. 
and you learn more about them and you learn their story and then they discuss, you know, okay, well, this is where we're going to go next. And there's a lot of character conflict. They lose friends, they lose people, they they fight with each other. There's just a lot of emotional drama involved. Then they're on their way again and you're back into the playing part of it where you've got to get from here to there and, and do everything that needs to be done, figure things out. And once you've done that challenge, you hit the next cutaway and more of the story unfolds. So the gameplay is feeding the story because it's getting you from here to there. But the the real story comes about in the cutaway. And that means that all of this has been absolutely thought out. Uh, sometimes you you end up playing the same portions over and over and over because you get killed and you got to start over. But the 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 interspersed dialogue between the two main characters, Joel and Ellie, it's always just a little bit different and you learn things about them along the way. So it's not just, and, and, and the character, the non-playing characters that you're killing or interacting with or whatever, they do different things the second time, third time. So it, it doesn't have that monotony of same, 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 same. Okay. Now I passed the level. It it's, it evolves and and changes as you go. And, and I just I was I was fascinated by it because just how this is very similar to how writing a story as a novel has many, many moving parts that you have to take into account. And creating a story as a film or for TV has many moving parts, but slightly different, so too does story as a video game. And I would imagine that of those three, video game as story would be the most difficult to pull off successfully, because not only do you have to create the story itself, you have to leave room for all the variances in between and also create the gameplay. And I think maybe having seen pieces of The Last of Us, it's all downhill for me from there on out. Like it's probably one of the best examples of what a video game can be. And and I would I would love to hear from our listeners who are also gamers to find out what games you have found to be the most storified, the most enjoyable from a story perspective. And, and it would be fascinating for me personally to, to find the common elements between what makes these games work and become as fantastic as they are. It, it, the, the games are good. Like the play is good, but it's the story. Story, the emotional impact and everything that's happening along the way that really, truly makes it what it is. And I also noticed something completely unrelated to story that I, I laugh when I watch it because <laughs> the characters themselves, when you look at how they interact with all the buildings that they're in or things that they do, they are smaller than hobbits in terms of proportionality. There, there is no proportion. Like the, the backgrounds and the and the the design and and all the graphics, 
it's almost like they were created completely separately from the characters and what the characters are doing. And when you put them together, it's like a hobbit in a big person's world. And I found that completely just hilarious that everything else would be so amazing. And yet somehow all these perspectives are off. And I can't have been the only person to have noticed that. And there might be a real reason for it. I, I don't know what it is because I I don't do video games. It might actually be the standard. And I wouldn't know because I, I don't do video games. But the reason I wanted to talk about it was because of the story, how blown away I was about the story, which is probably news to nobody but me. But But it was the first time that I really understood that video games are story. That story is so much of what makes a video game what it is that that if all you're doing is just killing for no purpose then it's just not going to have the same impact as if you're actually involved and you become a character in this story so yeah that was my take on that and i'm fascinated now and i'm sure i'm going to be like looking at other video games to see what level of story they deal with anyway that's all i got on that i think i understand what you're saying and i i I've seen people play video games very briefly um, and our kids will watch video games on YouTube, but those are young kids' video games. Um, are you saying that there are like pre-prepared, almost theatrical scenes that are interspersed between gameplay where you're at, you as the player are interacting with the game and then based on the results of what happens, then you go to either option A, B, or C for what's displayed next as close, close but not cinema? Close, but not quite. The, the gameplay is where your choices all get made, but the cut scenes only show up after you've completed whatever the ta- whatever the game wanted you to do, whether it was to kill everybody who was coming after you or find your way through a difficult, uh, find your way over a dam and, you know, let's say you've got to swim under the water and find this and then use it to float somebody on or whatever. It's like a, a, that part of it would be a puzzle. Once you have completed that, then the pre-scripted movie-esque aspects of it come in and show you the in-between, like the what happens between the characters. It might be like one of the things that I saw, the the main character was trying to hand Ellie over to someone else to to continue the journey. He didn't want to be the one to continue the journey. And so, you know, she gets upset and she runs away and steals a horse and it's just all this stuff that happens and it has to get resolved. And then once it's resolved, they are on their way again. But now that character, Ellie is mad. She's upset. So she's pouty and she's this and she's that during the gameplay. She's oh, different wow. type of interaction with the characters. Uh-huh. Like it carries through from the cutaway into the gameplay. But then once you finish, so now you've got another challenge. You need to get from here to there, find this, survive, get to this next location. And once you've done all the things that the game is expecting you to do, then you'll get your next cutaway. And it'll show you more of the story and the interaction between the character. But you don't get to choose which interaction you're going to get. You just, the choices you make during the gameplay just determine what happens in that section of the game until you get to the end and you complete that section and then you get the next cutaway and move on. Interesting. 
that's that's got to be fascinating. I'm actually, as you're talking, I was looking it up, and there's actually a master class on how to become a video game writer. <laughs> I am fascinated by it. I don't think it's something that I could ever personally do myself, simply because there are not enough years left on this earth <laughs> to do all the things I've already set out for myself. But I'm fascinated by it, and just based on what I saw there, huge admiration for whoever built that story, just as storytellers, just huge admiration. And I'm like, I feel a little bit dumb for not having ever seen it before. Like I should have, but it's just not been on my radar. And I'm, yeah, I'm very, very impressed by the storytelling. All right. Well, that is this week's episode. Thank you for being with us again this week. And we will be back with you next Tuesday. Yes, we will. And guys, here's your time to shine. I know there are game players out there who listen to this show and you have a chance to like inundate me with information. So have at it and we will be back in your next week.